People of the Book on 101.9 High FM. Chrisida Cowell is the author and illustrator of the best-selling How to Train Your Dragon book series, which is now an award-winning DreamWorks film series and also the basis of a TV series. Chrisida grew up in London and on a small, uninhabited island off the west coast of Scotland. She now lives in Hammersmith with her husband, three children, and a dog called Pigeon. And her newest book, The Wizards of Once, has just been released. And to talk about it, I've got my children, Aliza and Ami, in studio. They've read the book, they've loved the book, and they want to share their enjoyment and passion for the book with everybody out there. Once there was magic and magic lived in the dark forest until the warriors came. Zar is a wizard boy who has no magic and will do anything to get it. Wish is a warrior girl, but she owns something forbidden and something magical and she'll do anything to conceal it. When the stars collide, Zar and Wish must forget their differences if they are ever going to make it to the hidden dungeons of, at the warrior fort where something has been sleeping for hundreds of years and, and will be staring. This is a story with two heroes. The boy, Zoe, is from a wizard tribe, but he has no magic and he'll do anything to conceal it. The girl, Wish, is from a warrior tribe, but she owns a banned magical object and she'll do anything to conceal it. To you, Aliza. The Wizards of Once by Christina Cowell is fantasy. It has wizards, warriors and witches in it and is told by an unknown named narrator. I think I know the character wants the reader to guess who it is, so it must be one of the characters in the story. When I read the book, I had an idea of who it was, but I don't know if I am right. The story is about, is about Zah, a young wizard and wish, a young warrior princess. They are enemies. Zah is no magic, and his father is very disappointed. Zah decides to catch a witch so that he can be given magic. However, he only catches Wish and the Bud God Budkin. But Wish has a magic sword, which Zara wants. Prologue. Once there was magic. It was a long, long time ago in the British Isles. So, so old, it did not know it was the British Isles yet. And the magic lived in the dark forest. Perhaps you feel you know what the dark forest looks like. Well, I can tell you right now that you don't. These were forests darker than you could ever believe possible. They would ever believe possible darker than ink spot, ink spots, darker than midma- midnight, darker than space itself, and twisted and tangled as a witch's heart. They were known as what, as known as they were in what is now known as the wildwoods, and they stretch as far in every direction as you can possibly imagine, only stopping when they reached the sea. There were many types of humans living in the wildwoods. The wizards who were magic and the warriors who were not. The wizards had lived in the wildwoods for as long as anyone could remember and they were intending to live there forever along with all the other magical things. Until the warriors came, the warriors invaded from across the seas and they and through they had no magic, they brought a new weapon that they called iron. And iron was the only thing that magic could not work the warriors had iron swords and iron shields and iron armor and even the, the horrifying magic of the witches were powerless against this metal first the warriors fought the witches and drove them into extinction in a long terrible battle nobody cried for the riches 
for the witches were bad magic. They're the worst sort of magic. The kind that that tore winds from larks and killed for fun. They could end the and could end the world and everyone in it. But the warriors didn't stop there. The warriors thought just because some magic was bad that all magic was bad. Now the warriors were trying to get rid of the wizards too. And the ogres and werewolves and the entire quarreling mess of good sprites and bad sprites that burn like stars doing the darkness casting mischievous spells on each other. The giants who moved slow and careful, careful through the undergrowth. Larger than mammoths as peaceful as babies the warriors had sworn they would not rest until they had destroyed every last bit of magic in the whole of the dark forest which they were chopping down as fast as they could with their iron axes to build their iron fields in the new modern world this is a story of a young boy wizard and a young girl warrior who have been taught since birth to hate each other like poison the story begins with the discovery of a gigantic Black feather. Could it be that the wizards and warriors have been so busy fighting each other that they have not noticed the return of ancient evil? Could the feather re- be, really be the feather of a witch? The twelve and thirteen-year-old enjoy fantasy, and have read other Christie the Carol books will enjoy this and feel that they are one of the characters. Although I have read it, I would enjoy reading it again. Can I ask you, Haliz and Ami, would you read the second book in the Wizard of One series when it comes out? Of course, definitely. I want to get it. Thank you. That was my children discussing the book uh, Wizard of Once by Chrissida Cowell. It's available in the shops. She wrote, as I said in the introduction, How to Train Your Dragon. Uh, it's a fantastic children's book, uh, that series, and uh, The Wizard of Once. My kids loved it. And I will be highlighting a few more children's books during the rest of this year because there's some great things coming out. School holidays around the corner. We want to encourage the next generation to read as much as we do ourselves. And now for today's, the rest of today's show, we have a great uh, guest in the studio. We have Ian Mann, who's a fellow book reviewer. He has yeah. to get through at least a book a week. Uh, Ian is in the studio because he has written a book that came out recently, The Executive Update, the latest business ideas distilled into one practical guide. Ian, you have read over 600 books in the last so many years. Yeah, probably about the last 18 years, but it's probably, probably more than that. Uh, and and your, your focus is business? Only business, yes. And once you've read books, you then keep the, the – it's not just any book. I'm sure you look very carefully for the best books. Indeed, indeed, it, which is getting more and more difficult, but it's, there's, there's plenty of fantastic stuff. It's also a lot of garbage. And then you distill the best of the best into, this is a very, very concise book. It's with your notes, at the, with your bibliography at the end, 120 pages. Yeah, what I do every, every week, I write a column in, in Fin24 that usually comes out on Thursday afternoons, and I summarize the best ideas I've come across in that book. The idea is not to, you, don't, you never have to tell a South African which books he shouldn't read. They don't read anyway. So the, the key is to take, to take whatever the business book is and take out the very, very best ideas out of that book and put them together in a thousand words. And I do that every single week, 49 weeks a year. And this, this, um, the, my last book, this executive update, I'm always telling people bits and pieces about ideas that I come across when I meet them. And it occurred to me that probably a good idea would be, would be to pull them all together in some sort of organized form. 
So when I spoke to Random House, they um, they said to me they liked the idea, but they suggested that I write it in the form of a book that could be read on the flight between Joburg and Cape Town return. And and that's what I've done. So I've pulled everything I couldn't, probably in about the last four years. So you're figuring about 200 books went into that. And um, the 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 idea is that uh, it's all it's all pulled together the best ideas and they all make sense as as a composite whole as opposed to he said she said type of book. And I was I was looking through your bibliography when, when I get a book to review nonfiction the first thing I look at is the bibliography to see w- what ideas what books they have mm-hmm. I recognise you've quoted and it's it's a it's it's, it's a who's who and uh, of the latest. Thinking in the world of business management, Indeed. business books, case studies on famous, uh, famous companies and famous leaders, and a lot of psychology as well, which Indeed. we'll touch on later. Right. So just, just your bibliography is about, I don't know, it's four about pages. Pa- no, it's about 11 it's pages. It's 11 pages, yeah. <laughs> yeah. And it's, if, if you're taking all of that and distilling it into 110 pages of easy reading mm. from the flight between Joburg and Cape Town, the return. executive update, return shop <laughs> here. It's, yeah. it's, it's, it's a, it's a distillation of a huge number of very important ideas. I think so. Yes. We'll be dump, we'll be diving deep into these ideas as soon as we finish with, uh, paying our rent. People of the book on 101.9 High FM. We're in studio with Ian Mann and, uh, as a fellow book reviewer, I feel yeah. a very strong connection with your, with your passion for books and with, uh, with what we're going to discuss over the rest of the show. How can readers turn ideas that they get from a book into practical actions? Um, I think the very first thing they must do is don't read a lot. Um, I think that, um, I, I, I get through, but I get, through, I know, I get through a hundred, I get through 49 business books every year. It's far too much. I think what you need to do is read read uh, reviews of books. Find one that you one or two that you like, and take one or two books and learn the book. If a, if the book is worth something, not not uh, a thin book put together by somebody when he had nothing else to do, but somebody who's been seriously producing a book, you take that book, and he's probably spent two or three or y- years just putting the ideas together, which he's developed over probably twenty years before that. Then he's written it up. I would say that it probably takes most people three or four years to write a good book. No human being has a right to read that in, in one week. I think you've got to read that and digest it and, and mull over it and talk about it and argue with it and write in the columns. And I think that the a book must be seen as something that you work. So because you're going to work your book if you wanted to make a difference in your business life, you're going to have to really put some effort into into it as if you were learning it for for an exam. And then once the ideas once the ideas um Settle in your head. I think that you'll find that you actually are acting out the book. And, and very few of the books that I read are, um, here are the six steps that you need to take to fix up your accounting system. It's not that sort of stuff that you, you can do and then it's done. Um, and usually those type of things other people can do for you. But it's the, it's the perception of what business is and how you should run your businesses that once you've got the aha, you've got that insight, you're going to find that it's going to be able to be used provided that you really have it. And you make those decisions almost intuitively because your world is constructed now with this new idea. That's very interesting. Most people think that more is better, but you're telling us to sift. Be very selective. Be very selective. Indeed. Choose the book that you think is going to have the biggest impact, and it becomes a textbook for you. Indeed. That's a, that's a, that's a, I don't think your publisher will be happy with, <laughs> with that answer. <laughs> yeah. But then you can spend a lot of time reading novels and other things in Indeed, your. Yeah, that's for pleasure. And that's, that's enlightening and very enriching, but it's a completely different purpose. 
the how do you how do you read a book? Do you take notes? Yes, I I I I read books pretty much twice. I, I I read the whole thing, I underline, then I go back and reread my underlinings, and then I draw up mind maps. So I've got a mind map of every single book I've ever read, and then I pull that together into a into a, a piece for the newspaper. Um, so I've I've gone through the book quite thoroughly until the ideas have sort of settled in my head and I've got them. And I think that the fact of writing them up, first the underlining, so you cut out what, you don't, what wasn't fascinating, pull together what's fascinating, see how the whole thing joins to form a one coherent argument, and then you try and make that argument uh, fit together in, in the form of a piece. So if someone's reading a business book which they want to implement into their business, mm. in their life, or help them move up the career chain, that's a good approach even if they're not going to review the book underline and write up what you've read because then you start internalizing it you do and and i I like mind maps because it allows you to organize your thinking eventually you 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 can see what the author was trying to get across and what's the best ideas and which ones of those are most meaningful to you in the context in which you operate so i think that once you've done that you can you've absorbed them and you've got them and then it's worth something that's uh i like i like the approach i like the approach what are the new emerging trends that are starting to be felt in the world of business? Um, they're, they're, I think that there are there are few that are f- terribly fundamental. Uh, you're gonna have to bear with me when I take you through this. It's all going someplace. Yes. In the good old days, we had uh, we we had we built malls, and a mall was is a platform. It's a platform on which um, you you bring people together who are different. You bring people who want to buy stuff and people who want to sell stuff, and you put them on this platform together so that they can interact with each other. And then what you do is you try and make it as comfortable for the buyers to buy and the sellers to sell so that you'll have more people coming into the mall, and you take a, a portion of the earnings out of that in the form of rents or commissions or whatever it is, and that's how you, that's how you make money. That's a platform. So you build a mall, a mall of Africa, you spend $5 billion on the mall, and what you do is try and pull everybody together Put them in there, and 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 now what to do is you've got a, 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 you've got a business of providing a platform for buyers and sellers. If you wanted to build a second or third mall, you have to go and find other people who are brave enough to to put up another five billion rand for another mall, and then it's going to take you five or six years to put up another mall if you're lucky, and if you're lucky, you might even make some money if you're lucky, because they seem to be overtraded. We now our mall our, our platforms are becoming so thin, so thin that they that there's nothing there. You can't even touch them. They're purely electronic. So we have the largest motor car rental company on the planet, not owning a car. We have the largest um, res- hotel group in the world, if you can call it that, um, accommodation group in the world in in Airbnb, not owning a bed. We create platforms now that you don't that you don't touch. They're all, they all are electronic platforms. And those electronic platforms can scale in ways that are absolutely phenomenal. Um, from Apple, that's a platform for, for selling music. But they don't have a single CD in their shop. They, we, we are creating a whole new world where platforms are becoming more ethereal than they've ever needed to be. And I think this etherealization of, of, of business is going to become more and more real. We will never be able to teletransport the things that the, the sofa that you bought into your home. So the logistics is going to become even more and more important than it was before. But, but I, I, I suspect that if we do have malls, there'll be places where you go into 
and you look at all the Samsung products and um, you say, have you got one of those? He said, no, we don't, we don't sell those. We just show them. Go online and, and have them delivered to you. So the world will be, the world of transactions can change very, very profoundly. So I think that that's one thing. Second really profound trend I think we're, we're finding is, is the digitalization of money. So we, we're seeing now that we used to have, we used to have cash, stuff that you had in your pocket and it jingled. Um, and, and then we moved towards notes which told us that you've actually got money that, that's owed to you and it's actually worth something. Then we're going to checks, then we're going to credit cards and completely electronic. The, the the problem with the electronic money is not that it's no good. It's terrific. It's fantastic. It's so easy to use. The problem is that the in the olden days, people were going to banks with guns to steal money. But that's so 20th century. Today, what you do is you hack in to, into accounts and steal money. The amount of money that's stolen on the, in the world through cybercrime is is 400 billion in order 400 billion which doesn't mean anything because it's too much money but 400 billion is is probably the is probably the the gdp of about 90 196 countries not obviously not the biggest but about 196 countries gdp is stolen every year by cybercrime and the 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 extent of the stuff is, is absolutely scary and what's happening now is that we are we are opening ourselves up the biggest thing that's going to be happening it's happening already and it's going to continue to happen is how vulnerable we are um our, our assets are to 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 cybercrime and cybercrime is not only going to be stealing your money um, a motor car is fast moving towards being a computer with four wheels and the plane is only a computer with wings so if you wanted to commit the hijacking, you wouldn't put people on the plane. If you could get into their systems, you could do some very interesting things. So, so I think that the, the change in, from to where the cyber world is going to be, I think that that's going to that's going to make a big difference in our lives. That and platforms for starters. With platforms and digitization. Okay, we'll be back with some more. This is very profound. Thought. People of the book on one hundred one point nine High FM. We've got Ian Mann in the studio. He's a fellow book reviewer, but his specialization is business books. And he's in the studio today because his recently published book, The Executive Update, is available from Zebra Press. Uh, it's subtitled, The Latest Business Ideas Distilled into One Practical Guide. And we're just discussing some of the ideas to do with the world of business that have been condensed into this book. Uh, fascinating stuff. We, uh, whatever we discuss, you'll find mentioned in this book. So if you do want a distillation of the last four years' best business books that you can read on the aeroplane, return trip from Joburg to Cape Town, the executive update is your book. It's written by Ian Mann, and it's full of some of the most fascinating, fascinating ideas that uh, cover the whole world of business. What are the biggest challenges facing business today? I think that the biggest challenge facing business today is that we don't know what the future is going to be. Um, I, there, are, there are still people, it's hard to believe, but there are still people who, who develop strategic, five-year strategic plans. Um, considering that we don't know the cost of money in two weeks, we have to ask ourselves how do we actually, how logically and rationally does a person develop a five-year plan? 
Um, the world is the world today is changing primarily because of technology. It's the big changer. Other times it's been energy, it's been other things, but this one's a, this one's a technological change. This era, technological change. Future technologies are by definition technology that don't exist today. If the world is going to be changed because of future of future technologies, it means they don't exist today. It means we don't know what the world is going to change into. We have no idea where it's going to go to. As a result. The, the, um, we are very, very unsure of where things are going to unfold. Compounded by that is the interconnectedness of all things in the world. Um, Luddites might try to pretend we're not global, but we're absolutely global. And there's probably no products or services that we have that are, haven't been influenced or, aren't, or, haven't, or haven't got components of worldwide, of worldwide technologies and ideas. <clears throat> With the result, the world is very, very complicated. And we're seeing more complication than we've ever seen before. So I think that that is the biggest, the, the biggest thing we're going to face. I think there's another fact we have to we have to bear in mind, which is going to become, which is going to make, make profound changes. And that is that we're going to live long. Um, Thomas Hobbes in the 18th century said that the world is nasty, life is nasty, brutish, violent, and short. Our lives are going to be nasty, brutish, violent, and very long. Uh, with the result that in all probability your children, the ones who we were listening to just now, are probably going to live till close on 100. Now, if they retire at 60 or 65, they will have spent probably 30 years, maybe a bit more, um, in trying to earn money that's going to keep them alive for the next 30 years, uh, which is not possible. So we're going to have to look at how we reinvent ourselves so that we remain constantly relevant in a very, very fast-changing world, world where whatever you learnt in university will become obsolete so fast that it's that it, it's quite scary. And you're going to have to relearn. So if you were ever a person who hated school because they hated homework, we're living in an era of homework. And if you're not going to be continually studying and learning for the rest of your life, you can become that old guy who's like out of it. And we can't take him seriously anymore. And in fact, we don't even know what we can do with him, and we'll keep him till he retires and then it's all over. But we certainly won't re-employ him after he's 65 because he has nothing to say. He hasn't kept up with what's going on um, over the last 20 years, whether it's technology or science or, or concepts or anything at all. He hasn't kept up. Unless he's on the cutting edge of things at 65, which is combined with his wisdom, he's going to be un- unemployable. Okay, you looked into the crystal ball, and the future's pretty uh, it's pretty uh, murky. Uh, but the books that I've read—that's also what keeps coming up—and the un the unknowability of the future and the dangers of create the difficulties, I should say, of creating mass employment in a world where. So much of what we do can be replaced by an algorithm as well. Mm. So that's, that's the digitization of data, of, 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 of labor. Mm. You know, if we can take one step further, um, the, we, we have, we have seven and a half billion people in the world. We've never ever had so many people. I mean, until 1800s, we only had a billion people in the world. 1800s, we had probably a half a billion people in the world and then it shot up. We had a half a billion people in the world, in the world for as long as the world's been around. We've never been above that. There was max. Now, we've got far, far, far too many people than we need. We probably, we probably don't need, it doesn't matter what we do, we probably don't need more than half of those people to keep the rest of the world going. 
So we've got a lot of redundant people living on the uh, living on Earth, and that is a very very serious challenge. It's not that we don't have enough food for them. We've got plenty of food. There's no shortage of food on the planet. We're incredibly smart, and we've been able to do do things in the last couple of years with with production of food that is absolutely staggering. Um, we we uh, the amount of wheat that we we we've had. You take a country like Mexico. Um, in about 25, 30 years, they became a net exporter as opposed to a net importer just because they're able to use better crops and better, better methodologies and fertilize and all sorts of other good stuff. So we, their food isn't the problem. The problem is what do people can do all day and how are we going to, how are we going to, how are we going to keep people alive and happy in, in the, in a world where there isn't enough work for people? The work that we have is going to change. So if you look, if you take your idea about the digitalization of work, uh, I, I had a, we, many people I think who listened to this might have had the same experience. W- watching Kasparov um, playing chess against uh, IBM's computer called Deep Blue. At the time, I thought it was just publicity stunt that IBM was doing. Um, and then from about 66, when they started doing this stuff, they, they, um, Kasparov was beating them all the time until he didn't. And when he didn't, he said that there was human interference here and he stopped playing the Deep Blue. Today, Kasparov is in a completely different situation. He now plays chess with a computer, not against the computer. He plays against other grandmasters aided by a computer. Because we know now that a computer and a grandmaster is smarter than either a computer and a computer or a grandmaster and a grandmaster. It's like a cyborg computer. Now, the, the, interesting, the interesting part of that is not that... Um, they were able to com- uh, to create a computer that can play chess, because in your third move, fourth move in chess, there are, there are nine million possibilities up to the fourth move. Gets 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 really high after that. A human being can't deal with nine million possibilities, but a computer can. So that's fine. The interesting part is where IBM is now. IBM developed a thing called Watson to play a game called Jeopardy. A game called Jeopardy goes like this. It's like, what's the question? So if I said to you, 27, what's the question? You'd have to have been listening to news the whole week to know that somebody in the Department of Foreign Affairs actually said, all the 27 countries in Africa, and that's, of course, a big laugh, because many more than 27, but he, somebody in the uh, Department of Foreign Affairs said that, and now I said to you, what's, 27, what's the question? And you'd say the question was the question asked to which this was the answer, right? But how do you get a computer to do that? I can put information in which has got a linear structure, which has got a a finite rule base, and get a computer to grind through masses of stuff. How do I get a computer to pick up nuances and jokes? The the game Jeopardy has been played for many years. I think it's had about 3,000 shows. And the man who made the most money made about four and a half billion dollars out of it. And then they put a doctor, a Watson to play against it. And they finally programmed this artificial intelligence to be able to slurp up enough information to beat him at Jeopardy. Now it's not because IBM people are, are fun loving. It's because they're using this for artificial intelligence. They wanted it for, for, um, what they call Dr. Watson. A medical doctor would have to read about 160 hours a week to keep up with what's going on, which is not possible. A computer can slurp up 160 hours worth of data in no time at all and then disseminate it to 100,000 doctors. 
So all of a sudden you're going to have a doctor who's, who's, who is aided to a completely different degree of medical knowledge by having a computer at his side who's assisting him. They're already using that with, with certain, with diagnosis of certain types of cancers with accuracy that's quite remarkable that human beings would never have been able to do. So when we talk about the world of work, we're now going to have human beings using computers to do amazing stuff. And we've always had the idea that we program computers to do things. We can program them very intelligently to do things. And then very recently, we, um, Google, using um, one of their, their, their DeepMind, a company they own in, in, in the UK, developed a thing called AlphaGo. Go is a Chinese game which is so complicated that there are more atoms, visible atoms on, in the world, than there are moves on, on a go. There are as many moves on a go board as there are visible atoms in the world. It's, it's just unbelievable, Matt. None of the go players who are really good can tell you what the rule structure is or why they actually made the moves that they made. What calculations are they making? It's a, it's a strange paradox where a human being knows, doesn't know that he knows that he knows. And how do you program a computer if you're going to get a computer to a human being program a computer to know what he doesn't know that he knows? About three years ago, the AlphaGo beat the European Go champion 5-0. Now, that's like – it's only a European champion. It's not the world champion. But winning a game of tennis against the European champion is not bad. And I think it was about 18 months ago, they won against the World Go Champion 4-1. This, they'd created the computer, which they couldn't create. The computer had to create itself. Now we ask ourselves, what sort of, what sort of options are available? What sort of um, jobs will no longer be needed that can be done by a computer? And we're starting to see a completely different world in which human beings' positions are going to be... Um, significantly different to what they are today. And the speed at which that's happening is absolutely staggering. And I, I, I suspect that people who are not keeping up with that stuff are so far behind that they and they're moving further and further behind. For the most part it doesn't really matter. You buy apples, you sell apples, it's fine. But there's a lot of other things beyond that that I think are going to be are, are, are consequentially important for anybody in business to deeply understand. Uh, we're going to move on to the next question. We've looked at some of the biggest challenges facing business. We've looked at some of the emerging trends. We're going to get into some uh, real concepts that you mentioned in the book. What are holonic organizations? Mm. Um, I think that the, the um, if we just go back through the history of organizations, people organized themselves because we could do more if we were organized than if we weren't organized. The very first organizations that we ever had, I think, were best described as wolf packs. You had your alpha wolf, and uh, alpha wolf was in charge of the pack. He was the commander. He's in every, he, everything falls around him. And he was he, the pack was held together by two things. One was fear, and the other one was control. And the fear was very interesting because the alpha wolf remained the alpha wolf until that look in his eye didn't scare anyone else. On the day he stopped scaring another wolf will take him out, and he becomes the alpha wolf. So it's terribly important that the alpha wolf becomes is, remains very, very dangerous, or at least is perceived to be very dangerous. Um, that's the fear of him. That's the fear he imposes on his people. His people join the pack 
because of fear of not being in the pack. And so we lived in societies like that with a king at the top who was incredibly powerful, who had to surround himself by people who were afraid of him and who needed him because as soon as he wasn't powerful enough, a prince would take him out or another king would take him out. And that was our general way we ran organizations. Then we evolved somewhat because the, the, the wolf pack hunts and kills today and then they eat. If they don't kill tomorrow, they don't eat. So it's very opportunistic. Was a buffalo coming by today or wasn't it? We, we wanted to see if we could plan further ahead. And so we developed another model, which is essentially the army. The army was a similar thing, chain of command. There's a man on the top who knows all, sees all, and command, gives commands to absolutely everybody. The beauty of the army was every single person in the army knew what he had to do. He had your, your soldiers, he had your horse riders, he had your archery. Everybody had a place and they were fully trained. So what I did today in the army, I could repeat tomorrow. So I could plan ahead. And that was the evolution of the next organization, the image of the army. Uh, the, the, the organizations still run like that today. I think that the, the Catholic Church is run like that today. I think that a lot of school systems are run like that today. There's a principal at the top. Yeah. Principal at the top, there's teachers who all do exactly the same things, depending on the standard. There's a certain number of kids in the class. They do all sorts of, they go through exactly the same curriculum, and they'll repeat that again next year. So th- that was a model that we used and was very successful at the time. As we evolve still further, we start asking ourselves the question, how does the man at the top know so much? Why should I believe in him so much? If he's, if he's God's representative, maybe I can understand a little easier, but if he's not God's representative, how come he knows all this stuff? With the result that we start asking questions, why should we trust him? And the answer was, well, if you don't trust him, what will you trust? And the answer we gave was, is the command efficacious? Will it make it happen? And so we, a model moved towards the model of a machine. And in the machine, uh, it's very machine-like. If it works, it's good. If it does not work, it's bad. So we built our organizations like machines, like a well-oiled machine. And everybody had a place. Every machine part had a part number. And, and organizations worked very, very nicely like that. The only problem was that, and of course, if, if, a, if a part was faulty, you just contacted stores and said, listen, do you have a 22B? They say, yes, we've got 22 B. So we'll send one up and just get somebody to attach it. Then we, when we built our organizations like that, we had things called, called job descriptions. So you were a 22 B. And of course, if you, if you got ill, died, or pregnant, or stupid, we send down to stores, which is called HR, and we say we need another 22 B, and they send another 22 B up with exactly the right job description, plug, plug him or her in, and all is good. The problem with that model is it's soulless and almost in, increases the soullessness of an organization where we polluted the world, we abused people, we, we shed jobs like we threw away old parts, um, all in, incredibly inhumane. But their organizations were fantastic because they're big, they're powerful, and they developed humanity in ways we've never seen in human history. But we've gone through two other evolutions. The next evolution after that was to say, listen, we've got to humanize this place somewhat. And we've got organizations where the model was not the, was not the wolf pack or the army or the machine, but the family. And we started worrying about, you know, you don't say to your kid when you come home and say, listen, child, is it correct that when I saw your first quarter report, I said that your math marks were unsatisfactory? Said, I say that to you, son. He says, yes, dad. He said, I say to son that this will not happen again. And you say it won't happen again. You see, that's correct, Dad. 
And when I saw your second term report, I saw you'd repeated exactly the same poor, poor result. And I said to you, this, is, this cannot carry on. And you said, Dad, it won't carry on. And we agreed it wouldn't carry on. Now I'm opening your fourth, third term report. And it's happened again. Am I correct that an E for math is not acceptable? We didn't agree. See us there. So what the son, you're fired. You're no longer the kid. Yeah, we can't treat people like that. When, when we talk family, we don't talk like that. So we start building organizations where we worry about people. We worry about paternity leave. We worry about how, how they're getting on, how they get on with each other and so on. And, and the, the idea of, 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 of a organization as a family was a much more humane organization. It was an organization where, where we worried about nurturing people. We worried about motivation. We worried about caring that you committed. We worried about soft stuff that nobody ever talked about before. In the old, if you had to say to your grandfather that my staff are unmotivated, he would say, do you pay them? So yes, then they're motivated. That's it. Um, and, and the idea of worrying about how they're feeling was completely irrelevant. We've, we've humanized to the point where we're starting to think like that. And that's, and organizations that have been run like that have been incredibly successful. Um, the best organizations are ones where the ones that are most productive are ones where people are treated really well. And that seems to have done particularly nicely for humanity. The very last stage is to look at organizations quite differently. And the organizations we look at, the way we look at organizations now is very much like a human being's body. Your body is made up of body, big, large body parts, but also every large body part is made up of tiny cells. And those cells within cells within cells are what they call holons. It's a Greek word. It just means something within something, a cell, a hole within a hole within a hole. So you've got lots of cells and they form a heart. And the heart is part of the body. And the thing. Okay. So we, we create organizations which are holons. A holonic organization is an organization which is not hierarchical. Because even in a family, I'm still pa and you're still the kind. In a holonic organization... You say, well, you are, you're responsible for, you are the CEO of reception. You know what we're trying to do in this organization. Um, you know how this organization's to be run and you're the CEO of, 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 of reception. The CEO of the company has a completely different function. He walks into reception one day and he says to the receptionist, you know what I'd like? Our values are to be really good to our customers. Says, That's great. So what I would like from you is I'd like you to serve them coffee when they come here. As soon as they come into, into the foyer, I'd like you to serve them coffee. She thinks for a moment. She says, nah, don't think so. Normally the CEO in the old-fashioned world would have said, um, you like your job, you like the salary, you like the perks, coffee, coffee. In a Holonic organization, she would say, he wouldn't even ask the question. He would say, well, you're the boss, that's it. If he said, look, indulge me, why not? She'd say, well, you see, by the time I call somebody down from the second floor to pick up their guest, the coffee won't be ready. And even if it is, he'll be walking up two flights of stairs with coffee. That makes no sense. The CEO says, well, why didn't I know this? Because he'd never been a receptionist. So you devolve power to, to the lowest possible person for power, and you make your organization, every organization as a whole, functioning within another whole within another whole. It's a very different model. That's Hellenic organizations. Okay, we've got quite a few more questions that we want to get through straight after this ad break. People of the Book on 101.9 High FM. This is People of the Book, and we've got Ian Mann in the studio. He's, the, he's, he's a business consultant, 
and uh, he's the founder of Gateway Business Consultants. He also is a book reviewer, and he gets through 49 business books in a year, which is almost one a week. And he's also the, ed- the author of The Executive Update, the latest business ideas distilled into one practical guide. We've just been discussing for the last half an hour the distillation of so many ideas into concise um, mental bite pieces that uh, – can help us understand the world of business better. We've looked at how to put ideas gained from a book into practice, how you should read a business book. We've looked at big challenges in four, in face, the big challenges facing business today and emerging trends. We've just looked at a concept called holonic organizations. Now I want to ask you about conscious capitalism because you do devote quite a bit of space in your book to this. Yes. I think that, I think it would be fair to say that, that the, it's fair to say, it's undeniable that capitalism has been the most successful economic system, um, known to mankind ever. There's only one problem. It's not very, it has, it's benefited every, it's benefited humanity, but not equally. Some people have benefited grandly and others have benefited very, very little. We can all complain about how thing, how tough things are and that they're poor. There, there's something like two billion people in the world who live on less than two dollars a day, which is, which is absolutely shocking. The only thing is that two sevenths, if two sevenths of the world are living on less than two dollars a day, 150 years ago, 6.9 sevenths Lived on two dollars a day. We're living the most glorious period in human history, and with all the all the all that we bleat about everything, including violence, we're living in the least violent period in human history. We're living in the the, the best fed, the richest, the everything. And despite that, we're not we're not in the 18th, 19th century anymore. And because of that, we actually do want more equality between people, because inequality is a very, very, very dangerous issue. Capitalism has, has, is a mechanism, and I think this is quite an important thing. Capitalism as a system is absolutely brilliant because the alternative to capitalism is a planned economy. Some group of people who are super bright, who know all sorts of things, who, who, are, who are prescient in ways that are beyond the ordinary mortal will tell you how, the, how we're going to run the state, and they have a planned economy. It's a lot of nonsense has never succeeded anywhere. The best way to succeed is to have a market which is a free market. The problem with the free market, so that's undeniable. The problem with the free market is that there's no such thing really as a free market. For example, we, we know in a free market you can own things, which is fair. I think that's what we mean by free market. You can own things. The question is what can't you own? Can you own a person? Can I have a slave? Can I own an animal? Can I do – I, if I own the house, I can, read, I can break it down and I can reconstruct it. If I own a dog, can I reconstruct the dog too? You know, we're, so what we do in society is we put laws in all the time. We put laws in to, to make things more fair. For example, trade is always done by contracts. I enter into a contract with you and I expect you to honor that contract. But there are certain things you're not allowed to contract. It's, I, I, you can't, for example, in this country sell body parts. We, we've, we limit what you can and what you cannot contract. You can't contract, even if the contract signed was fraudulent or, 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 or criminal, you can't, the contract can't be enforced. So governments all the time are making rules and changing things that allow the free, that, that make the free market better. But they choose. Why, why is it that you can't, you can rent things that you own? Why can't you rent a womb? Uh, why can't you buy a child? So we've got all these things which we can and cannot do, and societies decide what, societies elect governments, and governments make rules 
by which this, the free, free market will be contained. So there isn't such a thing as a free market, which is capitalism. It's always, a, it's always an interpretation by some people. If I give you one, one simple example, and you can see where this is going. The American government passes a law allowing pension funds to invest in, to invest in the market, not only in bonds. In the past, you invest in bonds because they're guaranteed, they're government, it's good stuff, it's solid. Then said, so no, you can do better. All of a sudden, companies, companies were allowed to invest in, 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 uh, the pension funds were allowed to invest in the share market. So what did, what did people own companies say? We've got to be the guys that want to invest in. If we want to be the guys that want to, that, that pension funds want to invest in, we must produce great returns for the shareholders. If we're going to, produce great returns for the shareholders, there's a fixed pie. If I make a, a million rand this year and I want to give my shareholders a really, really good return, I must take it away from somebody else. I can't give staff big bonuses. I can't give, uh, I can't invest in, in, in other things like development or anything else. So if you have a fixed pie, you run into the problem of saying, um, and, and the most important thing in your pie is your, is your shareholders. We all, we're totally concerned with shareholder value and not much concerned with other things. So our, our form of capitalism, our form of capitalism evolves to meet the, 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 the dictates and sometimes we allow governments to make rules which turn out to be very hard and very harsh. Those people with a lot of money and with a lot of power have always been able to influence governments more. When unions were very strong, they are able to, they are able to influence governments. And because they can influence governments in a democracy, they can be ensured that the, that the poor are looked after and there isn't an un, un, an imbalance between how wealthy the wealthy get as opposed to how poor the poor get. You can look at the decline in, in the, in, in, in labor unions in the United States, um, and, uh, and see the point at which wages for, for labor became stagnant and wages for hedge fund owners went, went astronomic. So the, the, cap, the conscious capitalism is an attempt to, to mediate that. So you're going to have a short ad break. We'll be back with a bit more of conscious capitalism, and then I want to go into education afterwards. People of the Book on 101.9 High FM. This is People of the Book, and we are in conversation with Ian Mann. His new book is a distillation of four years' worth of the best business books available. It's called The Executive Update, the latest idea, business ideas distilled into one practical guide, published by Zebra Press. It is available in the shops at the moment. we got about five minutes to finish off our discussion on conscious capitalism. And then the last question I want to ask you is, knowing uh, the different forces that are forming and changing the world of business, what is the best way for us to educate our children for the future? But let's get through conscious capitalism first. Yes, conscious capitalism, consciousness. If you think of it in terms of, of of mysticism and Eastern religions or wherever it is, it's always where you see the world as being bigger than just you. Uh, it, it exists over eons of time, not just me in, a, in my microcosm at this little moment, me and my un, my nuclear family. The difference between, in, in a nutshell, the difference between conscious capitalism and and Crony capitalism. Crony capitalism is best best compared to a, a, a caterpillar. Caterpillars grow about three hundred times their size before they go into the cocoon, into the chrysalis. And during the the, the 
their growth, all they do is they just eat absolutely everything they possibly can. That's what conscious, that's what crony capitalism is. Me and my friends, we're going to get as rich as we possibly can to hell with everybody else. Conscious capitalism says the world, if the world is bigger than me, time lasts longer than me. And because of that, I need to not only worry about me and my friends, the shareholders, but I need to worry about my friends, the shareholders, my intermediaries, my staff, my suppliers, my community I'm working in. The, the idea behind conscious capitalism is that if you, if you manage this whole process correctly, it isn't a zero-sum game. And for a lot of reasons that will take us far too long to explain here, it's a way of expanding the pie so that everybody benefits. In order to prove the point, what I did was I found the most nasty part of capitalism, which is retail. And the hardest part of retail is always food retail because there's such a demand for the stuff and such pressure for everybody to push their prices down. To push your prices down, you have to squeeze your supplies. You squeeze your, once you finish squeezing your supplies, you can't squeeze them anymore. They're white. What you do is you squeeze your staff and you put them on variable times and you really get the most out of them you possibly can and put as little into them as you can and you squeeze everywhere you can. So retail is hard. I, I've, I did, I've come across masses of research, good research on, on, on retail that basically show that when retailers run along capitalist, conscious capitalist principles, they make more money. They make more money than the equivalent stores anywhere else in the world. So the, the, the system works. You just have to know how to work the system, uh, to make this, this, this an idea which is far more sane, far more, far more humane actually work for you. And that's why I think conscious capitalism is so important. Okay, we've got one minute. How should we educate the next generation to w- live in a world that's changing by technology? There's absolutely no um, – cons- we, we, we just can't see any continuation in the long term. I think that the, the, one of the things that comes out of Jewish tradition, which is, which is very, very deep, is this idea of lifelong learning. There's never, I've never met people who are serious about their Judaism who say, well, I, I, I finished my studies, I, I graduated from yeshiva, and that's, it's, now it's all over. It's lifelong learning, and people learn throughout their whole lives. I think that the best thing we can do to our, for our kids is to explain to them this is all temporary stuff. Everything you know now is going to be finished tomorrow. But, and as long as you're a lifelong learner, um, uh, the, the, and for, never stop learning, you're most likely to be safe. When you stop learning, you're going to find that you're going to get yourself into a great deal of trouble. So it's, I think the most important thing we can teach kids is not stuff, but how to learn. Thank you. This is Ian Mann. He's in the studio with us, conversations and discussions around his book, The Executive Update, the latest business ideas distilled into one practical guide, published by Zebra Press. It's available in shops now. If you're flying to Cape Town, you can read the whole book on your return flight there and back. Uh, and you will then be exposed to the greatest business business ideas from the last four years. Thank you, Ian. It's been a pleasure having you here. Thank you.